0: Here we go. Take it away, Gene Parsons.
1: Good evening, and thank you for joining us tonight on the Trail Stewards
0: Radio Hour. I think we have a really good show coming at you tonight. We are going to start off with a few short updates, and then we are going to get into first an interview we'd have with environmental scientist Will Russell from San Jose State University and also Teresa Schollers, ecologist, professor emeritus, and longtime coast local. Both Will and Teresa are going to give us an in-depth look at redwood forest ecology and also forest practices and the rules that govern them. Before that, though, we're going to go back to the Camp 1 at Mendocino Woodlands, listen to more of Gene Parsons on the banjo. We are back with another edition of the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Coming up, we have interviews with two people who I really appreciate listening to, environmental scientist Will Russell and ecologist Teresa Schollers. Before we get into those interviews, though, I'd like to make some updates. The first is kind of a, a sad piece of news that last month we talked to Matt Simmons about the Russell Brook timber harvest plan on MRC property in Upper Big River and how Epic had filed litigation and MRC went in there and they, they cut the most disputed areas. We will give you an update on that next month when we know more. There was a great show last week on the Ecology Hour and I really would like to recommend it. It was about bats, local bats and not so local bats that there are 13 species of bats in the county. One of the things that was not mentioned on the show that I think is really fascinating is, is that studies done up in the Angelo Preserve off Branscombe Road have showed that bat guano from the bats that live in the old growth redwoods is actually crucial to the nutrient cycle of the redwoods. Quite a fascinating show. Go to kzyx.org and look in the archives for last week's Ecology Hour. Also, before we go any further, get a load of this. (laughs) The second annual Casper Forest Fest is coming soon. A benefit to save Jackson, a sacred Pomo homelands. Saturday, June 11th at the Casper Community Center from noon until 7 p.m. Funkin', folkin' and Bluegrassy Music with Mama Grows Funk, Gene Parsons with Secondhand Grass, Daryl Cherney, Holly Tannen, and Diane Patterson. Speakers will include Pomo Tribal Elder Priscilla Hunter, Sarah Constance Rose, and Ravel Gautier of the Mendocino County Youth for Climate. There will also be a pollinator garden and citizen science project presented by Isis Howard of Xerxes Society. There will be workshops, kids' activities, information booths, beer, wine, and fine food by Dalen and crew. All are welcome. No one will be turned away. Proceeds are going to the Coalition to Save Jackson, the People's Forest. Many of the workshops and the citizen science project will be in English (inaudible) y Español. Vamos a tener actividades y presentaciones en español y inglés para todas las familias hispanohablantes. Find more information at www.MendocinoTrailStewards.org. That is the second annual Casper Forest Fest, June 11th, the Casper Community Center from noon to 7. One more thing I'd like to let you all know about is, is that Michael Hunter, the tribal chairman of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo, continuing to meet with Wade Crowfoot and others at the California Natural Resources Agency, kind of the top of the food chain above the forest lands of California. And from what we're hearing, they are making some progress. We may be getting a chance to rewrite the management plan of Jackson State Forest. The other thing that I have heard, and I hope it's true, is is that none of the timber harvest plans that are currently in operation, which includes Redtail, Partland 17, Chamberlain Confluence, Soda Gulch, and they would like to have Casper 500 too, but none of them are going to start until there has been some sort of agreement with the tribes. Let's go now to Will Russell, Professor of Environmental Studies at San Jose State University, And 25 plus years of researching forest disturbance and recovery. He has a PhD from UC Berkeley in environmental science policy and management. And I would like to apologize ahead of time on this interview. We do have a little bit of noise that keeps intruding on my Zoom connections. And I'm trying to troubleshoot this, but so far have not been able to. And occasionally there were some background kids intruding as well. But the content is there, and it's all intelligible, and I hope you enjoy it. How are you doing today, Will? I'm doing great. What got you into studying redwoods?
1: Well, that's a good question. I spent every summer up in Mendocino with uh, my grandmother and grandfather, who owned 120 acres of redwood, much of it old growth. My grandfather was a forest advocate, he actually passed away in the Mendocino County Courthouse after giving a speech, protesting, a logging. Wow. Uh, yeah, I had a heart attack. In 1972, I was 10 years old, and it made a big impression on me. Wow. Uh, I got really connected to the forest. The property that they owned is now part of the state park system, mm-hmm. and hopefully protected in perpetuity. Yeah. I've been studying forestry since um, I was a graduate student, first at uh, San Jose State, and then I went to UC Berkeley as a PhD student and studied uh, forest uh, ecology and management there as well, uh, then landed this this uh, cushy job at San Jose State, which has been a, a great blessing.
0: You've got a lot of really amazing articles on um, restoration and natural redwood forest regeneration. But this particular study that just came out that you... Um, you did with a graduate student. You can tell us about understory response to mechanical thinning.
1: Well, it kind of uh, reflects back to a lot of the other work that I've done uh, by myself and with grad students. I've had a wonderful team of grad students, including the one who worked on this project, Alyssa Hanover, uh, which essentially shows that uh, the Coast Redwood Forest is incredibly resilient and recovers very well following pretty much any type of st- disturbance that's thrown at it, including human disturbance. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the study that we, we uh, just published, um, we were looking at three different treatments, uh, comparing old growth, unmanaged forests uh, with uh, forests that had been clear cut about 60 years previous to the study. And then another forest that had been also been clear cut about 60 years previous to the study, and then Uh, subsequently had been thinned uh, for restorative purposes uh, about 12 years prior to the study. So when
0: you say thinned, what were the methods?
1: Well, uh, thinning can be a lot of different things. In this case, they were doing mechanical thinning, which means the use of a chainsaw. And uh, um, in terms of forest management, there's a couple different types of thinning uh, described as pre-commercial and commercial thinning, those are terms that get thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, They make a lot of sense if you're thinking about timberlands. Um, And folks who are managing timberlands, they often go into a forest after it's been cut to do a quick thinning to kind of let more light in to grow the remaining trees faster.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: If If you're growing timber, you want big trees fast. That's the goal. And so uh, that first thinning will be cutting trees that have no market value. Mm -hmm. A commercial thinning is cutting trees that have market value. Mm -hmm. So you go in and thin again, they may not be as big as you're hoping to get eventually, but they're big enough to sell. Yeah. So commercial thinning uh, would be that sort of situation. In Redwood National Park, they were doing both types of thinning. Mm and commercial thinning was a large part of the project. So timber was being sold out of uh, Redwood National Park, which is fairly unorthodox with regard to the national parks. Uh, historically, uh, resource extraction was prohibited in the national parks. And I think the first time that it was allowed was under the George W. Bush administration in Uh, giant sequoia state park or national i'm sorry national monument giant sequoia national monument yeah Uh, he allowed some commercial logging in there but this is uh the size of this project in redwood national park is unprecedented and it's been sold on the grounds of it being a restoration thinning and yet um logs are going to market
0: (laughs) do you know the maximum size trees that were taken out
1: I actually don't have that number in front of me, what the maximum size trees were, but there there were, I mean, a marketable tree is going to have to be bigger than, say, 20 inches in diameter normally. So some of them could be substantially bigger than that.
0: Yeah, yeah. The The area of your study that was commercially thinned, was that an old growth area?
1: It was a recovering area, an area that had been clear-cut 50, 60 years prior. Mm -hmm. And so the argument for the thinning was that this area had been damaged by that initial clear-cut, and that this was going to help the recovery of the forest.
0: Yeah. Do you know if it was um, single tree selection or group selection?
1: Uh, Single tree selection, um, definitely, because they were going through, uh, the idea was to leave the biggest redwoods um, to target the dug fir which had actually been seeded in after the clear cut mm-hmm. and then take um, the remaining trees out of redwood and i think they had a, a uh, target of 40 percent reduction mm-hmm. in diameter um, so of total diameter uh, basal area on the ground
0: yeah do you know what kind of yarding they were doing?
1: Um, there was a variety depending. Uh, they were trying to stay off the steepest slopes. They were using landing and roads and they, um, they rehabilitated all the old locking roads, which had been put to bed and they opened them back up, opened the landings uh, and mm-hmm. they're using, I think some cable yarding where they could and then uh, you know whatever made sense on the landscape. So when I was looking at this article,
0: um, I noticed that in the area that was mechanically thinned, you found that there were a lot of invader species and the um, unthinned areas there, that wasn't a problem. Can you elaborate on this?
1: Yeah, so invasive species, um, invader species, these are simply species that are not native to the area and that um, can take advantage of a forest opening and move in. And there are a few of them uh, in there, uh, bull thistle and a couple of other things. Uh, but I think the bigger story really was what wasn't in the thinned areas, mm-hmm. and those those were these redwood forest associated species, understory species that uh, you really only find in a healthy redwood forest. Yeah, things like trillium. Uh, Ovatum, which if you live on the Mendocino coast, I'm sure you've seen Oxalis, uh, fairy bells. There's a few of these species that again and again, uh, in research we've found are associated with a healthy redwood forest. So they're sort of indicators of a recovery. Mm -hmm. And those species, those indicator species were found both in the old growth and in the unthinned second growth but uh hardly found it all in the thin second growth, interesting, and
0: I've been really fascinated with the trillium, how many years it takes to well that 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 trillium we see are like old growth trillium. How many years does it take for a trillium to even be old enough to bloom?
1: That's a good question yeah it's it's about the same as a human, so it's about eighteen years or so wow. uh, before
0: they're reproductive, wow, yeah. Is there anything else you would want to tell us about this particular study?
1: Well, I think the the important take-home message is that um, the recovery in the unthinned forest was robust. And the thinning seems to have set back the understory, at least, mm-hmm. um, for the last... I mean, it's 10 years, 10 years since the thinning. So uh, 10 years after, it's still set back. And some of these forest thinning techniques have been very effective in the Sierra Nevada Uh, mixed conifer forest in the Rocky Mountains where trees can start crowding each other out. They get bark beetles. You have these these, uh, terrible fuel conditions that that can arise from that. The coast redwood forest is really different. Um, Its successional patterns are different. Uh, In a natural coast redwood forest, we have what's called a gap phase succession where The only openings in the forest are really where a tree falls down. Maybe that one knocks down two or three others. Mm -hmm. But you don't have this uh, stand scale uh, disturbance that you have in other forest types. And that changes the way it recovers and the way it um, reacts to continued manipulation.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you can answer this, but I'm curious about... You know, forest carbon, and with the thinning, there's so much soil compaction. And I've heard different estimates that 30 to 50 percent of the carbon sequestered in a redwood forest is underground. Can you? Do you have any take on how mechanical thinning affects this?
1: Uh, yeah, I think your estimates about the right ballpark. Um, I've seen everything to 30 to 50. You know, depending on the on the vegetation type but we tend to forget about the underground soil carbon. Um, so yeah, uh, soil compaction can can affect that. Um, tree removal can affect that. Um, Coast redwood trees, another thing that's unusual about them is they're clonal. And so often you'll have these clonal groups connected underground with, with huge root systems. And every time you cut, um, you're reducing the fuel to build that root system and the root system will start dying back Mm -hmm. when you do a cut. So you will definitely lose carbon initially after you thin a forest.
0: Mm -hmm. I have paraphrased you from a previous study you published. And I don't think I have this just right, but hopefully the spirit is correct. So uh, I remember when trying to correct past management errors and I read logging we must be careful when using the same tools that cause the damage in the first place. You've got many years of studying of recovering coast redwood forests. And what do you feel are the most important things to take into account when making forest management decisions in the redwood region?
1: Yeah, Again, I would just, I'd say that this is an incredibly resilient forest type. Uh, and unlike many forest types, it recovers very well on its own. Most of the actions that we would take to help with the restoration um, heavy-handed actions will actually set back um, the restoration effort, the recovery of the forest. With the exception of things like removing roads, uh, you know, some, some things to sort of rebuild soil, uh, I think in terms of restoration, these actions are counterproductive mm-hmm. and unnecessary. So back to
0: thinning. So thinning is being promoted for a number of reasons. and. Um, Seems like two of the main ones now are to improve forest resiliency in the case of wildfire. And I realize that's really variable depending on what type of forest we're talking about. The other would be to speed the progress to late seral and successional stage. And, um, first I'd like you to address the forest resiliency question. Do you feel like thinning actually creates a more resilient forest in the redwoods?
1: More resilient in terms of fire. Yeah. I I don't see evidence for that, especially when you do a heavy thinning. We're talking about forty percent thinning, something like that. Uh, Anyone who's been in a forest, in a redwood forest after it's logged, uh, knows what happens uh, after that. Two things: you get sunlight on the ground, which dries fuels, makes them more flammable. Second thing is you have a whole lot of sprouting, Mm -hmm. and. I think there's an oversimplification going on thinking about fuels like, well, if we just have less fuel, we'll have less fire hazard. You really want to think about what kind of fuels you have. Yeah. It's fuels versus fine fuels, Uh, wet fuels versus dry fuels. So in a healthy redwood forest, you have a heavy canopy that's holding moisture on the ground. You have big trees and some little trees. When you cut the forest, you get uh, the reverse of that. Lots of little stems Drier fuels. Um, the other thing you get is more oxygen moving through. And anyone who knows has made a fire in a wood stove. And I think a lot of people in Mendocino have tried this. Um, what do you need to get that fire going? You want lots of little dry sticks, and you want some air blowing through. It. Yeah. Uh, and when you thin a forest, you get more air blowing through it. The wind, the wind travels through the forest quicker. So I don't, I don't see the evidence to support that. You know, heavy-handed thinning is going to is going to help with forest resiliency. You know, treating treating the fuels around your house makes a huge difference. Going out in a remote forest and thinning, I think, could be uh, contraindicated.
0: Yeah. The the other reason we're given for a lot of thinning is, and they, they usually say thinning from below, but we don't know about that, is to speed the progress of the forest to late seral, late successional stage, what would you say about this?
1: Well, you know, I'd I'd really like to look at their definition of, of late Cyril. Um What 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 are they? What particular features are are being discussed? Um, we did a a, a study uh, with I did a study with another former grad student, Kristen Michaels, um, on recovery, natural recovery in uh, in that area in the Big River Watershed. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at stands that were various ages. And what we found was past 50 or 60 years of recovery, these many of the late serial conditions are starting to reassert themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and any kind of action you take after that point, I think should be considered very carefully, because you're more likely gonna set back recovery than, than increase recovery. Um, but again, you have to decide what what metrics it is you're looking for. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people, when they're talking about late Searle, they're talking about big trees. Yeah. Uh, big trees are important for, for timber marketing, certainly. Uh, but for old growth characteristics, you can find old care- growth characteristics, including uh, canopy structure characteristics, um, understory flora and fauna. You can find those in forests with very small trees. And I'll point you to another study I did, looking at the old-growth redwood forest on pygmy soils, mm-hmm. where we had some relatively tiny redwood trees that had all the old-growth features you could want: you know, huge lateral branches, great fire caves uh, to support wildlife. So, um, if we're really looking for development of old-growth features, first we need to we need to list what that what those metrics are, and then. Really, study what, what creates these and what what is uh, counterproductive in creating these.
0: Mm-hmm. We do have that study linked on the Mendocino Trail Stewards.org website on the Media Links page, right underneath the link to this interview. What would you say? What are a few of the defining characteristics of an old growth forest? If you know, most people think huge trees, and if that's not the main defining characteristic, what is?
1: Well, I always ask my students this question. Uh, what's the oldest tree in the world?
0: Bristlecone pine.
1: Okay, very top good. Of White Mountain. <laughs> you, got, you got a point for that on the quiz. How big are those? Not very big. Not very big, right. So size is not the, the main criteria for, for old growth at all. Uh, and it depends on what features you're looking for. But some of the important features in an old growth forest are their ability to support Wildlife. Uh-huh. So we think about what, what, uh, what features do we need for that? We need complex canopy structures, which require time. You can't speed that uh, by thinning a forest. Um, you need a lot of shade uh, to port, support salmon streams, to support other uh, wildlife species. Uh, you need uh, a lot of shade to support understory plant species as well. And one of the reasons I focus so much on looking at these little herbaceous species under the canopy is I think they may be some of the most important old growth features uh, for looking at recovery mm-hmm. um, The size of the trees is not not so important in terms of supporting any of the any of the other species we're talking about. Um, old trees tend to be bigger, but not always the case. Yeah, take a walk in the on the edge of the pygmy, and uh, you'll see something different.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us, Will.
1: All right. Well, thanks for having me.
0: That was Will Russell. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZYXNZ. That was Will Russell. San Jose State University, environmental scientist. Follow up on a little bit of, of arboreal information that has nothing to do with Jackson state forest or the redwoods. Um, the world's oldest living tree is Methuselah. And Methuselah is a bristlecone pine, great basin bristlecone pine, less than 50 feet tall. Thankfully, Methuselah's exact location has been kept a secret by the United States forest service. Methuselah is 4,800 years old with an estimated germination date of 2,833 BC. The tragic and classically human story that also goes along with this is of an older tree known as Prometheus. Prometheus is also a great basin bristlecone pine. Prometheus is dead. Prometheus was older than 4,800 years. And the story of Prometheus' demise is very tragic. Let me read this from the oldest.org nature. The circumstances surrounding Prometheus' demise are controversial and no one really agrees about what exactly happened. Although there are different different stories told, possibly out of embarrassment over the situation. Yes, it should be embarrassing to say the least. What is known is that a geographer by the name of Donald L. Curry was doing research on ice age glaciology in the moraines of Wheeler Peak in 1964. Curry supposedly received permission from the United States Forest Service to take core samples from the bristlecone pines in the area beneath Wheeler Peak. Taking core samples would help Curry to try to find the age of the glacial features those trees were growing on top of. Curry then found Prometheus, which was already well known for being the oldest tree in the grove. This is where the story gets murky. According to some accounts, Curry didn't know how to properly core trees, and so he cut Prometheus down instead. In another version of the story, Curry's borer broke off in the tree. Others have also stated that Curry felt he needed to cut Prometheus all the way down, To examine the rings better, regardless of what really happened, Curry irreparably damaged Prometheus, the oldest living non-clonal being on the planet and only left a stump behind. (sighs) This is a tragedy that belongs in Greek mythology, not in the modern world, but we continue to be humans. Are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on K-Z-Y-X and Z. We are now going to hear from Teresa Schollers, who has been a teacher of ecology, botany, and biology for 47 years. She is a professor emeritus at the College of the Redwoods, currently adjunct professor at Mendocino College and of the Jepson Workshops at UC Berkeley. She has been a longtime volunteer for the California Native Plant Society as a rare plant and vegetation coordinator for the Dorothy King Young chapter, which is here. She is a board member for the journal of Fremontia, which is now Artemisia the scientific publication of the California Native Plant Society and of the Northern California Botanists. She is also author for the genus Lupinus in the Jepson Manual and Flora for North America. She is ostensibly retired, but is still busier than ever and is teaching dog obedience classes. I spoke with Teresa on a walk on the trail that is called TV Trail by mountain bikers through a projected timber harvest plan above the Jug Handle State Park. A lot of this time was spent walking, so you can hear our footsteps and occasionally a noisy dog breathing away. When the recording starts, I had just asked her about the various botanical alliances that redwood forests participate in.
2: Well, the Alliance of the Redwood Forest is a rare and sensitive natural communities, and it should at least be transparently recognized And in terms of how we mitigate that And how we describe it is a different matter, but that's all being ignored in anybody looking at um, management plans.
0: How do you define Alliance?
2: California and the rest of the country is, is undergoing vegetation classification, and we should just call that plant community. And so the new system is looking at vegetation in terms of categories. The Alliance is the broadest category, and the association is the narrow one. So in a line, anytime you've got like 5% redwoods, you're going to have a redwood forest alliance because redwoods persist over thousands of years. And so the trees are going to dominate what is an alliance, next the shrubs, next the herbs. So they're, <clears throat> they're named after the trees if it's a forest ecosystem. If it's a shrub ecosystem, the alliances are, are, <clears throat> are named after the shrubs. So out, but northwestern California has not been currently mapped. In fact, Fish and Wildlife now has a grant that they've that California Native Plant Society did win in order to look at the alliances of northwestern California, uh, just so they can be mapped. Like we have finished mapping the Mendocino Cypress woodlands. What we're standing in here is really a redwood Mendocino Cypress. Redwood Alliance Mendocino-Cypress Association with Redwood and Bishop Pine. This hasn't really been mapped or acknowledged. Acknowledged meaning that we've haven't, we don't have enough of them out there yet in terms of um, samples to, to give, the, give the data validity. And, you know, it's just because of I'm doing it all for free, pro bono, and nobody's out here doing things at, w- at what we call the association level, which is the detailed level. hmm in fact, um, the Board of Forestry and people in forestry have no interest in in actually recognizing that there are sensitive natural communities. And right now, all people are looking at are endangered and rare and sensitive species. The problem with that is that the way they people deal with presence and absence of sensitive species is to flag a sensitive species and drive around it which really doesn't protect the species because if you change the habitat, then the species doesn't really um, survive well. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say rare plants, um, rare rare species is still really the only thing people want to look at. And we in the ecological perspective group are trying to get the everybody on board with looking at sensitive natural communities. If you look at the guidelines for biological surveys for the state of California, you are required to describe the sensitive natural community. But as of yet, that is not routinely done. Yeah, well, alliances and associations are repeatable patterns on the landscapes that um, fish and wildlife have in their diversity database. They actually have enough data to state that yes this is a repeatable pattern on the landscape and so therefore you know it can be classified as an alliance or association. They do descriptions and what we call stand tables like what percentage of the cover are different species and then at that point they map it and put it on bios and then that can act as a tool for management. At this point This particular Redwood Forest, Mendocino, Cypress, in here, chinkapin. this really is only in the provisional stage because it really hasn't been mapped. Now, this area here is prime territory for somebody to come out here and do what we call rapid assessments, where we can actually say what's on the land, and then somebody else goes in from Fish and Wildlife and then sees if that's a repeatable pattern on, on, on the ground, and then if there's enough data, then goes ahead and names it. And you can't protect anything until you name it, and you can't name it until you get data. At this point, we don't have the data on this.
0: So right now, I'm, I'm seeing a Mendocino cypress, a Douglas fir, redwoods, a Chinquapin, tan oak, bishop pine, a hemlock. The hemlock's a little further away.
2: Well, I mean, all, and all that is showing that, you know, all these upland forests, um, upland meaning not by the rivers where they, that flooding excludes non-redwoods. So these upland forests that have redwood dominating have not really been looked at in terms of what we call association or detailed levels of plant communities. And we need to, and what we're trying to, you know, we're trying very desperately to do that before management, which is the euphemism for logging, takes out the all-non-redwood species. So essentially, then you're taking out what makes it probably a rare association. So it's a battle to get information before you start impacting it. And unfortunately, you know, that is not exactly happening at this point.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. The timber harvest plant is supposed to be the CEQA equivalent, California Environmental Quality Act, and it is not in terms of how it's applied. So that means the private timberlands in Jackson being public are not really following that, and specifically they're not doing things like surveys before they their plans get approved, mm-hmm. which how can you make a good plan if you don't know what's there? Um, but the issue again with Jackson. This is public land, and so they should be the leaders in in looking at what they have before they be, before they set up THPs. And instead, we're fighting them on that. They are supposed to be a demonstration forest, and they have rare, sensitive natural communities here, and. What it looks like is what they're trying to do is get THPs approved in these areas before before they're looked at and that that's backwards. Um, we should be our public lands should be managed the best and they should be a leader in how to do things not not quickly getting eight THPs adjacent to each other and trying to run them through and that's mm-hmm. that is horrible.
0: Well, and if they call it a demonstration for us, then, you know, we want a demonstration of what you're talking about, not a demonstration of how to ram it through.
2: Well, and it's public land, so you know, it, it should I mean, there it, this, it, it's not supposed to be run as a profit for anything. It's you know, it is public land, and I think that is what the, why, why the community so Upset is that this is public land that there are egregious, to use Steve Sillett's term, <laughs> operations where they're cutting down large, large trees. That's his problem. My problem is they're cutting, you know, the, the Doug Fir, the Cypress, the Hemlock, all the mycorrhizal species that make this a resilient, climate resilient, water resilient, ecologically resilient community. And they do that because they stay, that's the way to get to an old growth forest, the late sural development, which shows they don't understand upland forests. Mm-hmm. Upland forests are filled with all sorts of non-redwoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, alluvial forests are dominated by redwoods because other species cannot survive flooding. So you can't manage these redwood associations the same. You have a redwood alliance, and then you have... Different patterns on the landscape reflecting soils, climate, and those are, are not acknowledged by what's happening right now. Um, and, Whoa. you know, redwoods have been around for millions of years, and they have, if this would have been an all-redwood forest, it would be, you know, it, it, I mean, this historically has always been an upland forest with other species,
0: I have been wondering what defines a late seral forest because it seems like there's different ideas and one is the timber management idea and one would be the ecologist's idea and what is your idea about
2: late- Well, late seral forest is supposed to be the more appropriate name for an old growth forest which basically, you know, is a forest that has recovered from some sort of what we call perturbation, which is just disturbance. That could be fire, it could be logging. It's going to be what, what the forest is gonna end up as. What people who are managing redwood forests instead equate it as um, a redwood forest just being only redwoods. And that is more true in sites where there's flooding. So this, um, and again, flooding eliminates other species because they're not tolerant to having silt deposited on top of the ground. That's, so so in, in going towards a late sural development along the, along the banks of Big River or Noyo, that, then there's a lot less other species. But if you are on these what we call upland forests where there's no flooding, then other species are more of an ecological background of the history of the forest. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know um, there are areas that Jackson State Forest and their management plan are saying they're going towards late soil development and there are others that they aren't. So that would be kind of the best option that they had in managing Jackson State Forest is let's, let's cut out the smaller ones, leave some of the bigger ones so we can turn it all into redwood forest. But unfortunately, that really is not what the forest ever was. It wasn't just, you know, 100% redwoods. And you know, you're know, not taking out 100% of the other species, but they're taking out too much of the other species.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, like in that area on the um, south slope above the South Fork of Noyo, where they had cut in the red tail timber harvest plan all those large old mm-hmm. douglas fir and when
2: but that that's on the slope so that's an upland forest that that was not a forest those trees that were cut weren't in the flood zone
0: mm-hmm. so but the, they're the oldest trees there yes
2: exactly but yes so they they definitely shouldn't have cut those trees but what I'm saying is that still is an upland forest. You're on the slopes. I mean, I, you know, uh, an alluvial forest is one that is impacted by flooding. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're trying to look at only having redwoods, that's an area where you're mostly having just redwoods. That slope with those huge dug fir, I mean, not only should they have not cut them because they were so big, but what we've seen is they cut down the the dug Fir, then they say they can't sell it because they have dug defect, they all have defect, and then they end up using them, um, they deck them up and then they move them all through Jackson State Forest to stop people from driving down trails, and right now what's happened to a huge percentage of those old great big dug Fir? they're all being cut up by locals for firewood, which frankly, they're already down. So, But, yeah. but all those like areas of mushroom corners, yeah. they're gone, Those yeah. trees. And I was walking there Sunday and saw guys cutting them. And frankly, I don't blame them. Um, but that's what's happening to, to these big old dug firs. which is um, those have, you know, those give the structure for wildlife habitats. I mean, they're, they're you know, ones with great big branches that are possible marble merlet habitat. Um, and, you know, they're trying very hard to get rid of those before anybody says to keep them.
0: Well, they said when pressed on it, at one point they said it was a mistake, that they accidentally cut them down. <laughs> but and at, more clearly, they said that they were trying, they all had conch, and they're trying to eradicate conch from the forest.
2: Well, you don't want to do that. Conch are very important in decomposing and making trees, uh, habitat for hollows from decomposition and rot, and then you get you know places for... Um, birds and other wildlife mammals so you, you this isn't a garden you you know these these fungi that that you know this conch this is not a disease like sudden oak death that is from another continent that you're trying to eliminate so it, that is just a feeble excuse to cut these down mm-hmm. so
0: it sounds like because of the pressure of what's going on that they are open to revising the management plan. And that's a lot smaller than revising the forest practice rules. But if you and I have talked about before that you are not against logging, I'm not against logging, and you used to log your own property. Correct. Right. So how would you do it differently?
2: Well, you know, for the first thing I would do, and I think this kind of goes along with all the different people who are who are upset about what's happening in in Jackson State Forest. It's public land. What needs to be happening is this place needs to be thoroughly mapped and looked at what's here. You, you, You figure out what you have. In any business, you figure out what you have before you actually start taking out your product. And that's how they look at it. I mean, and so that's the way you should look at this. You shouldn't just start logging things when you don't even understand what you have. And the science of vegetation classification in rare and endangered species and habitat and ecology has come a long way since the Forest Practices Act has been out there. And truly, it is very difficult to have a forest and take a product out of it. Um, But it can be done. It's just harder. I mean, it's always easier. It's not cornfield. And, you know, those cornfields were tall grass and short grass prairies that we have eliminated. And if that's okay with the public to do that then that's what they're doing however because in california we we got a law passed the california environmental quality act and basically what it says is that the people of california have a right to know what's there before they plan projects and that's kind of it it's it's not saying you can't do the project it's let it's let's daylight what is here and that's where i mean nobody's saying nobody on the Fish and Wildlife or California Environment Quality Act or CNPS, California Native Plant Societies. Nobody's saying you shouldn't be logging. You know, we have wood houses. But what we're saying is let's look at, at what we have and make the best plan possible. So I would stop the logging. I would basically um, hire people or, or have a joint project with California Native Plant Society and Fish and Wildlife to get this place mapped uh, and then you have better data to figure out how to move forward. And you might say, since it's public property, you might actually look at some areas that are more highly intensively managed, some areas that aren't managed at all. Uh, you would have, ho- um, hopefully, experiments on what to, how to deal with the slash. And what does make fire resilience and non-fire resilience and frankly, we don't know what we're talking about in terms of fire, because we look at these big fires that are not in this kind of habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the big basin one, where actually the trees survive fine, um, you know, that's in a much drier, ho- hotter redwood forest. So you know, we need information before we start taking out and damaging things more than they've been damaged.
0: Well, it sounds like we we financially have that opportunity because they just got allocated $10 million from the state budget separate of timber harvest and Jessica Morse, uh, Deputy Director of Natural Resources, no, I don't think I have that right, but anyway, she said that there's another $10 million coming down the pike and they're working to secure funding every year to keep the forest going without having to log, yet they keep... Um, pushing towards more timber harvest plans, you know they they say they have a they have already done all this inventorying that you're talking about. But how, what's wrong with their inventories?
2: Well, their inventories basically are this classification system where they're just they're only just looking at the trees and just at the pretty much well merchantable trees and um, as. If you, if you go to another state which has pretty much the same geology in the whole state and much of the same topography, if you go back east and look at eastern deciduous forests, you do see some local differences. But it's nothing like California. And one of the reasons that people who are trying to develop are so frustrated with California is that we have such unique geologies and topographies and, and climates that it, that, is ref, that produces... Really different vegetation types, and then different animals and plants and fungi and everything that's in them, and so it makes it harder because it's so different. And you, you know, at one point I have a map in my, in my house that was California vegetation that was put out by clear you know, in the, I think 60s, and it's just this broad sweep, and you can't, you can't look at the redwood forest and in. Del Norte County as being the same ones in Santa Cruz County. They're quite different, mm-hmm. and even here on the Mendocino Coast, you know, we have real different forests, which which necessitate different kinds of management tools. But first, we actually need to see what's there.
0: Yeah.
2: This, I mean, the redwood forest, you know, has a long history, obviously, of logging since the frolic, you know, crashed here and. 1850 and people discovered the redwood forest and they used the redwoods to build San Francisco twice, once before the earthquake and once after. Um, But the diversity of what we have here is amazing. We have we have parts of this redwood forest that are unlike any redwood forest in the world, due to the occurrence of things like the Mendocino cypress, which doesn't occur in any of the other redwood forests, Um, and. You know, Bishop Pine is also kind of a very unusual plant to be here. Chinkapin. So, you know, these these are things that really need to be looked at, and it um, it is something that uh, we actually want somebody managing a public forest to want to do that. And I don't know how the financials are set up and their requirements, but. Up to right now, this um, we had managers of Jackson State Forest had to be sued in order to even have a management plan which was required of other places so they they started off in the wrong direction but not by not even having a management plan. That management plan that currently stands is really out of date and needs to be updated using current science, not using. People sitting around and kind of talking about what they think their opinion is. Mm-hmm.
0: You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour on KZYX. I am Chad Swimmer and we are hearing from Teresa Scholars, ecologist and botanist and local plant guru. This conversation was recorded on a walk on the TV trail above the Jug Handle State Park with myself and Teresa and two dogs who you hear occasionally panting their way through the conversation. One interesting aspect of the timber harvest plan process is the section where you describe what alternative treatments might be helpful. So we were looking at a grove of mostly bishop pines, all marked for cut. And um, these are trees that are not sold for anything. And the timber operators are often very frustrated. They, They wish they didn't have to deal with it. So I asked Teresa what she would do considering that she had been her own timber operator on her own property just a few miles from where we were standing.
2: I would look at where the redwoods used to be, and you see an old, old stump here, and I would tag where they all used to be, because I think this is a much poorer soil, which was at one time with great big redwoods and then some some bishop pine in between, and what's happened is that you get these root sprouts of all these tiny little redwoods. So what people look like they're trying to do is take out everything but the redwoods. Um, I mean, every, everything take all these Bishop Pines out thinking that they will release all these tiny little redwoods into being great big redwoods. So the landscape tells you a lot if you just look at it. So if this wasn't a site, with a lot of great big redwoods, it's not going to be a site no matter what you do to it. So <laughs> coming back and releasing these guys, you, you know, they're not going to... You know, they're They are a little bit in the shade here, but not very much. I mean, you could maybe get, you know, you get a little bit more size on these things. But you really want to look at what not only is ecologically what this should be, but why put all this effort into a landscape that isn't going to give you, like, the board feet that people are looking at? So both from an ecological and an, an, an economic point of view, this definitely may not be worth doing anything but just leaving, the, leaving it alone. Yeah. Because it, it, just look at the site. And, and, you know, one of the things you can do to, to visualize what this was like 200 years ago is just tag all the old growth stumps. I see one. <laughs> so, you know, you have to k- kind of look in here. But what it really does show, and because we're on kind of a flat ridge, that, you know, the soils here really aren't prime for redwood. And, and you know, every time that we have tried to make a place um, better for a tree that we want that wasn't what it was there to begin with, you know, it's not like they need nitrogen. It, you know, it's much more complex than that. You know, and if we're looking to, the whole thing is we, we don't want to look at this as a crop. We want to look at this as a forest that we're actually trying to manage some high value species out of it with leaving as much of the integrity of the forest as possible. And so there are some places on the forest that really don't necessitate or warrant. Warrant is better. Any kind of management, again, euphemism for logging. Mm-hmm.
0: So, if you had your druthers, what would be the most important changes that you would make to the forest practice rules?
2: Well, that's hard for me to actually say because, you know, the forest practice rules. Um, have been amended uh, so much since I started looking at them, where they used to be just in a tiny little booklet that you got, and then it was a three-ring binder, and now it's online. Um, so I think what I would look at, instead of amending the Forest Practices Act, I would actually try to amend how timber harvest plans should be a sequel equivalent and require biological surveys to be done beforehand, before any of the plans are approved, and have those biological surveys cover what they're supposed to be, which is rare species and rare communities. And I think you'll get better protection than trying to have Forest Practices Act, which is supposed to go cover all different kinds of plant communities and all different sites. And that's why it's so onerous and complex. I think you're better off amending how THPs are approved and that they, when their surveys are done and that the surveys have to be done looking at rare species and rare communities. Mm
0: -hmm. What would you do, what would you add to Jackson Forest Management?
2: Well, just that. The first thing I would do is have, I mean, they should be the people who do the natural community plan which is where you don't have to do timber harvest plans again and again because you do your mapping and your biological surveys up front and at NCCP. And, you know, they basically put off their surveys, which are actually not good. They're not, you know, they don't cover sensitive natural communities. And they often don't cover the species well, although they're getting better at that. Um, You know, so I would have them... I would have them step back and try to map and look at what's in the whole forest. And, yeah, that's going to take some time. But if you actually do that up front, you're, you're going to be able to reduce all the work and money later on. So do the planning before you start doing your projects, which is what you're supposed to do with CEQA equivalents anyway.
0: hmm That was Teresa Schollers, professor emeritus, ecologist, and much more. Thank you so much for spending this time with us here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. The third Tuesday of every month focusing on forest conservation, forest management, logging, and specifically Jackson State Forest. We hope you've learned as much as we did making this show. To hear past editions, go to www.MendocinoTrailStewards.org the media links page where you will find all past episodes archived you can also listen on kzyx.org archive slash, jukebox or even better get the kzyx public affairs app wherever you get your podcasts with this convenient click you can hear any of the many great shows put on entirely by volunteers on kzyx listener supported public radio from mendocino county We would like to thank all the people who took part in this show and all the people who are out there trying so hard to change the management of this gem of a forest. In the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, also mother, scientist, decorated professor, practitioner of traditional ecological knowledge, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, What we do here matters. Everybody lives downstream. The views and opinions expressed here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour represent only the hosts and the guests of this show, not the management or staff of KZYX. I'd like to finish with the words of 12-year-old Ravel Gautier to Governor Newsom.
2: You made a promise to the citizens of California, and if you don't fulfill that promise, being perhaps the one person who has the power to, what kind of politician are you?
0: That is the $50 million question. Thank you for spending the hour with us, and we'll see you next month. The Trail Stewards Radio Hour.